And we're back. This week we're going to be reviewing 2004's The Chronicles of Riddick. Yeah, it was directed by David Tuohy and starring, of course, uh, Vin Diesel. He's going to show up a lot on this podcast. This, yeah. this era was really good for him. <laughs> I mean, you know, you have Pitch Black, and uh, which is the first Riddick movie, and um, Fast and the Furious, I think both come out in 2000, and he's basically only played those two characters. Triple X was right around that time, too. I think Triple yeah. X... Triple X was within a year of Fast and the Furious. So yeah, within like a few years, he established these three franchises and he's barely done anything else since. Yeah, he has been eating out off these movies. So, I guess should we sum up the plot for anyone that hasn't already seen it? Let's give it a try. You ready? Uh, as I'll ever be. And go. Uh, <clears throat> so this takes place five years after the plot of uh, Pitch Black. Um, there's an army of space BDSM enthusiasts going through the universe, destroying planets, and uh, the other survivor from the first one decides, because Riddick is good at fighting monsters, he'll be able to stop them, so he gets him to come and fight the uh, bad guys who are called Necromongers. That was really only the first, like, 20 minutes of the movie, but after that it does become pretty incomprehensible. Yeah, I feel like there were two or three different scripts, and they sort of cherry-picked from them, because there are whole threads that are dropped and then picked up again, and... They do a lot of, like, setups and callbacks to the first movie that are never really explored at all, but, uh, you know, you get what you get, I guess. The whole middle third of it go to the sun planet, uh... It doesn't really... I don't understand what it had to do with the rest of the movie. First, I just want to go through a list of... I wrote down all the planets' names in this movie. There's the UV system where everything is ultraviolet light. Purple, yeah. yeah. Um, so just, you know, don't jerk off on anything there. Um, there's Furia, which is pretty silly. Crematoria, which is a planet where the sun just shoots fireballs down when it... Every 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Helion 6, uh, which is just, like, if Morocco was a planet. Um, and then they mention a place called Lupus 5. That was my favorite. Yeah. yeah. I, wasn't that a boy band in the 90s? Lupus 5? Maybe. They were all, uh, very sick. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so, at the beginning, yeah, he comes to this planet, I think it's Helion 6, and Keith David's like, you know, save us from the Necromongers. And then, in the, yeah, the middle of the movie, he just... Yeah. He goes to this other planet, and then there's this escape sequence, and then it just has nothing to do with the rest of the movie, and then he goes back to the first planet. Yeah, and he fights the bad guys. Keith David's character was one of the people in Pitch Black that uh, Vin Diesel saves from these monsters. And then in this movie, he's like afraid that his planet is going to be invaded, so he sends for Vin Diesel, which doesn't seem like very good logic. Like, if you were afraid that an army was coming, just to call a guy who you once saw fight really well against an animal doesn't seem like a very practical response. I don't know, man. Why do you think they put Muhammad Ali in jail when he wouldn't go fight in Vietnam? 
You think that's why they wanted to send him to Vietnam? Yeah, they thought he would win. They were like, he's the best at punching. He can probably win the war for us. <laughs> yeah, they would have won if they'd sent him. That does seem to be Keith David's logic in <laughs> recruiting Vin Diesel for this mission. Um, he's like, there is a, a literal army about to land on our planet, so I thought maybe you could help me out. He really, really seems to be taking a short view of things. Yeah, it's, it's very silly. If, um, if that is his plan. Do we want to get into this army? Because, boy, oh boy. Yeah, the, uh, what are they called? The Necromongers. The Necromongers. Who, like, you're kind of led to believe they're, like, monsters, but they're just dudes in, like, prop armor. Yeah, they're mostly about the look. Yeah. The Necromongers. They have sort of, like, a Greco-Roman, like, Centurion thing going on, but with a little bit of the Third Reich thrown in. Uh, and then their architectural style, because lots of the movie takes place inside their buildings, is like sort of this weird art deco, like Art Nouveau. Like it's like the sets in like a Tim Burton Batman movie. Yeah. It's yeah. very. Everything is sort of black and shiny at the same time. They're kind of goth, yeah. They're very goth. They're really into um, like faces on everything. Like, you know that sort of famous photo from Fascist Italy where there's the building and there's just a big. Like sculpture of Mussolini's face on it. There's a lot of that in this movie. They're also kind of kinky. Yeah. As they, you alluded to in your Sum It Up. There is a bizarre sexual subcurrent to this movie. And it's you really can't ignore it. No. It's not one of those things like, oh, ha, ha, that could be interpreted as sort of sexual. It's It gets to a point where they're really rubbing your face in it. Well, and it becomes clear, too, that the main bad guy, uh, played by Colin Fior, is, like, the daddy dom, and he's, like, afraid of Vin Diesel, because Vin Diesel's, like, the other top in the galaxy. Yeah, that's sort of the whole character of Riddick. It's just that he's so dominant. He can smell when women are attractive. He Well, there's the scene where there's, like, a space lion that's going around eating everybody, and he just looks it in the eye, and then it, like, becomes subservient to him. Yeah. Or when the Necromongers first capture Riddick. What, also, the other weird thing about them is they use people as appliances. Yeah, they, they keep inserting, like, these sort of vaguely S&M situations. Not so vague, actually. No. <laughs> into just their, like, operational procedures. Like, they have heat-seeking gimps that yeah. they make wear, like, uh, VR goggles. Instead of just wearing infrared goggles themselves, they put them on these gimps who crawl around, <laughs> snorting whenever they spot something, and they're on leashes. It doesn't seem totally necessary to the infrared technology to have that included in the process. No, like, we have normal infrared goggles now that do not require a BDSM slave to use. They also use people as phones. Yeah, they, there's a scene where they have, like, a conference call, and they're communicating with these, like, by, like, whispering into the mouths of these sort of, like, corpses on slabs. Yeah, it's like, we were talking saying earlier, I'd hate to see how these guys make coffee. Yeah, they're constantly involving people as props in, in their day-to-day. -day. And the main bad guy can, like, rip people's souls out. Only him, though. Yeah. But there, that was definitely sort of uh, fetishistic in the way it was portrayed. There's also a scene where they're interrogating Riddick 
and they put him in this chamber, and they turn on some sort of power surge that I guess it, it like it's like a torture device or something, and it hurts him, and he drops to his knees, and there are these like ghost voices shouting at him. They have the camera on this low angle near his head, and he's bent over, and he keeps groaning. And we'll just say that it brings to mind something pretty graphic. Yeah, it's, you know, it seems like it's a scene out of deliverance. We don't need to say exactly what it is, but <laughs> we've probably... The banjo scene. We've probably said enough. There's also that scene where he's been captured by bounty hunters, and he's, like, chained up or whatever and asleep, and the woman bounty hunter, like, starts to, like, rape him. She starts to smell him. Which... Her pants are undone, though. Yeah. And then he, like, talks back to her, and she's like, oh, uh, no. He also lifts a character up by the vagina. Yeah, with his knee. Yeah. And no one ever says anything about how obviously painful that would probably be for her. Yeah. She's just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> what a man. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Lot A of, lot of weird sort of Clive Barker like bdsm kind of things being suggested in this movie. Also, the, the climactic fight with the, the villain, the Lord Marshal, Riddick throws a knife at him and it cuts his face, and the Lord Marshal goes, I haven't seen my own blood in a long time, which, if you've ever taken any English courses, you'll understand that that's a metaphor for the fact that Riddick is the first man who's made him come in a long time. You know, I've taken some English classes, and I didn't take that from that <laughs> line. But if you say so, we'll have to call one of our more academic friends to confirm that for us. I feel like, in, you know how in Bollywood they represent sex with singing? I feel like in this they represented sex with fighting. Well, Vin Diesel is also very sexualized as well. Yes. In the movie. So he's often sort of like dirty and greasy. Uh, like he, he's constantly glistening. In one scene, he's literally steaming. Yes, he pours, he lathers himself up with water, and then goes into the sun and comes back and is steaming. Yeah, because the sun is so hot on this planet, and when he when he runs out and then comes back in, he is just frothing with steam. And the camera shows him from this like low angle that's supposed to represent this girl looking at him as he as he glistens and steams in front of her. It's hot stuff. It's, yeah, there's, uh, like, I was actually surprised when Clive Barker didn't have a writing credit on this, I'll be honest. He is sort of represented as kind of pansexual, though, because yeah. it's like the male and the female characters seem equally as attracted to him throughout the movie. Well, Linus Roach's character is clearly Polly, and then at the end, he, like, gets undressed, and they both have the glowing handprint, which is, yeah. like, he's like, oh, Vin, Vin, like, you're the only other one that understands me. Yeah, that was great how the symbol of Vin Diesel's, like, heritage was just that there, it's just a handprint. They couldn't come up with anything yeah. better. Well, then there's, like, a cutaway to this woman with dreadlocks who just, like, will be like, you're finally learning, and I just had no clue what was going on. Well, that's because you didn't watch the, uh, like, ten extracurricular, uh, pieces of canonical storytelling <laughs> that came out before this movie. This is the ultimate, like, there's a will, there's a way cinematic universe. They're up to three movies so far, but they keep on filling in other parts of the story 
just any way they can. Like, there is a video game uh, prequel to this movie. There's also an anime prequel to this movie. There's a uh, anime, like, short film that comes out between this one and the next one. There's another video game that came out at some point. There's Riddick on Ice. Yeah. The ice dancing uh, <laughs> version. <laughs> that would be good. Oh, how... Sorry, I keep... I mean, I don't want to keep going back to the, the fetish aspects of the movie, but that the oh, bad we'll guys... we'll keep going back yeah, to it, for sure. It is a deep well that we will drink the waters of deeply. Um, Sounds but, like somebody's been yeah. watching The Chronicles of Riddick. <laughs> but the bad guys refer to, like, non-bad guys as breeders. Yeah. Which is weird because it's also a derogatory term uh, used in the gay community to refer to straight people they don't like. Yeah, I mean, I think this movie is clearly like a metaphor for the kink community, like, you know, re wreaking havoc on normies, and only a poly uh, at top can defeat them. I mean, that's better than I could do here. But yeah, it's, it's implied that the necromongers don't actually reproduce sexually. They are, they, they just enslave new members to their society. Yeah. They don't have a safe word. They have sort of like a Thanos-like philosophy. They claim that they're trying to like restore a balance, sort of, and that death is the ultimate balance or something. It doesn't make any real sense, but neither did Thanos' thing. No. That bothered me with that movie. Like, why would killing 50% of people solve anything? He's it, like, oh, so there'd be more food for the rest of the people who are still there. Yeah, anyway. like, no, bitch, Malthus was proven wrong like a century ago. Come on. Yeah. Get out of here with Get that. with it. Get with the program, Thanos and Necromongers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this movie's very like, short on common sense. I would agree. Um, although it does, as a Vin Diesel movie, feature a scene. The fir first scene, the first line he has in the movie is when he's just explaining to an antagonist what he's done wrong. Vin Diesel loves playing characters that, that explicitly uh, tell bad guys what their mistakes were when he gets the drop on them. Another example is in The Last Fast and the Furious, when he tells Charlize Theron that she never should have put her foot on the neck of a tiger. <laughs> and thing, He loves giving these uh, florid speeches where he describes in gruesome detail exactly where bad guys went wrong when they attempted to take him down. Can you imagine what he's like in restaurants and waiters screw up your order? One, Vichy Swazo is a cold soup. Told you. <laughs> half and half. <laughs> but you... Oh, I don't know. Um, you could fill in the riff yourself, folks. But yeah, he it's his first line of dialogue in this movie is him telling some mercenaries like four mistakes they made. He, he loves lecturing. He doesn't even use the compliment sandwich. He's not like, okay, you did a few things right, but like here... Are some flaws. Well, so yeah, I guess we go into the cast. Uh, you have, of course, Vin Diesel, Colin Fiore, uh, Thandie Newton, friend of the show, and uh, Carl Urban played the bad guys. Um, and then Judy Dench shows up as like a spirit creature, an elemental. Yeah, she's just kind of like an exposition mental, though. Yeah, she's sort of set up like she's supposed to be a bit of an Obi Wan character. Or M, yeah. Yeah, but she she shows up sometimes to explain things, and she can sort of, like, phase in and out like a ghost. Which leads to a really funny scene when the necromongers are, like, trying to capture her, and they just 
like have a bunch of chains jangling behind her, but she's a ghost. They somehow are still able to tie her up, though. It's Yeah, it's very yeah. Jacob Marley-esque. Apparently Vin Diesel, who was one of the producers, refused to like go ahead until he had cast Judy Dench. Apparently she was the first person they cast. Yeah. Which is crazy. He was like, everything else depends on her involvement. Which is nuts. It's like, what, like, Rooker Hauer was, like, busy that day? Like, it's like, such a throwaway role. It could have been played by literally any actor. Well, because she's CGI'd. You could have just, like, had Max von Sydow leave a voicemail of his lines and then put that in. You could have done it. Yeah. I could have done it. Like, all she does is say, hey, you are in this prophecy, we think, and you should go fight these guys. And then she tells the bad guys also about the prophecy and then they tie her up and she never really shows up again yeah oh i guess the whole prophecy thing is like an allusion to macbeth but you know that would be giving a lot of credit (laughs) i would say judy dench is the only notable like cast member other than vin diesel in this movie the rest of this movie like the characters are so one note even thandy newton who we love she gets to sort of chew the scenery a lot whenever she's on screen, which is fun. Like, she, she really, like, goes full cheeseball with it, which is what this movie demands, certainly. But other than that, nobody really stands out. There's also Alexa Davalos's character. So she is playing uh, the little girl who Vin Diesel rescues in the first movie. Uh, they recast the role because the original actress, who was a child actress at the time, uh, wasn't able to get into good enough shape, apparently. They were like, no, we want somebody hotter now that it's been five years. <laughs> and what's wild is that she's, like, so sexualized in this one. And the first one, she's supposed to be 12. Yeah. And so in this one, she would be 17. I don't know what the age of consent in this universe is, but it's sort of jarring because they, like, reunite in this top security space prison, and she is just, like, vamping it up. They have a lot of sexual tension between the two of them, which is never delivered upon, but still. It's sort of like he he implies that he's been thinking about her a lot in the interim, which is creepy. The last time he saw her, she was 12, and he was like, well, I better plant the seed now so I can come back in five years and see what happens. Yeah, it's, well, there's a creepy sort of grooming vibe to it, but also, like, the middle third of the movie is, like, the first bit, he goes to the planet, you know, and then is like, wait, I gotta, like, go on a side quest to get some pussy, and then takes a huge detour to, like, go meet this girl he's been grooming, and Since then, childhood. Yeah, and then, you know, goes back to fight the villains, because they have her. I, yeah, it's, it's very Woody Allen-ish. Really illustrates uh, how far we've come in the last <laughs> I would have, this might have been, this might have been a better movie if we'd had Woody Allen as Riddick, and, you know, like a teenage actress as... That's the one genre Woody Allen I don't think has ever done, is full-on space opera. Yeah, I think now or never, Woody, come on. Yeah, maybe that's what he needs to come back. Vicky Cristina Fiorina? I don't know. Imagine if, though, like, that was, like, Woody Allen delivered the Star Wars movie that all the fans loved or something. (laughs) Like, they would forgive him in an instant, or a lot of of those people would. Absolutely. Can you imagine him, like, 
beating up a bunch of tough guys in a movie and then being like, duh, duh, now, uh, he, here's the four things you did wrong. <laughs> One, you left the back door open. Uh, two, I, uh, he's doing that to Marshall McLuhan and then he just yeah. throws him out of a helicopter. Um, what else? The, uh, the fashion in this movie is interesting. The whole aesthetic of it is sort of this weird hodgepodge of... Terry Gilliam meets Waterworld meets Star Wars. A little bit of Dune in there. A little I bit think. of Dune as well. Yeah. One thing I really enjoyed was that some of the characters get these sort of like crazy futuristic costumes, and some people are just wearing like collared shirts and sport jackets. Yeah. It feels like they didn't have enough costumes to go around for all the extras, and they let some people just like shoot the scenes and whatever they showed up to set in. Yeah, some people wearing like armor, some people wearing like these flowing robes or like I think I saw a Death Leopard t shirt. Yeah, no yeah. <laughs> Well they go to the prison and the guards just are wearing like janitor like outfits. It's a remarkably like inconsistent aesthetic. Yeah, and when then like all the guns and stuff are like from Warhammer forty thousand. Also the CGI in this is very is you know, a space opera movie that it's dependent on CGI and it's sub playstation 2 level a lot of the time yeah a lot of it looks like a video game cutscene. it's they clearly didn't have lord of the rings money on this thing i mean the plot of this movie feels like it's a video game like taken from a video game cutscene. um sadly for a 2000s action movie this does not deliver soundtrack wise there is no new metal yeah unfortunately it's an original score which seems like a real missed opportunity. Maybe... Not even over the credits. Maybe there's, like, a, a Dark Side of the Rainbow <laughs> album out there for this. Like, <coughs> if you play Hybrid Theory by Linkin Park, right, <laughs> you know, at the beginning of the movie, it all syncs up perfectly. Yeah, I mean... Well, one of the problems with this movie, too, is, like, in the opening voiceover, Judy Dench is like, sometimes evil has to be fought by another kind of evil. But, like, at no point in the movie is Vin Diesel shown as doing anything evil. Like, he kills people, but it's like they're trying to kill him. Yeah, they set it up like he's an anti-hero. And I guess in the first movie, they were able to get away with that to a little bit because you didn't know the guy yet. Mm -hmm. But in this one, he never does anything, like, mean to anybody. He's sort of, he's a little bit surly with people. He's snippy, yeah. He pretends to be a selfish guy, but every moment he gets a chance to help somebody, he always does. He just, like, complains about doing it. He's like, I'll help you, but, like, you better keep up with me. And it's like, okay, that's still heroic. Yeah, they make him out to be, you know, a really unconventional protagonist because... He, he's a heartless killer, but he's, he's by. That's he's why. not at all. Yeah. <laughs> he's uh, he's very predictable and good-hearted in the end. Actually, I bet you Riddick wouldn't identify as bi. He'd be like, "No, I'm, I'm polysexual," and you'd be like, "So you're just bisexual?" But like, no, it's different things. Yeah, <laughs> I, that sounds about right. One bisexual isn't polysexual. Two. Um, oh, he kills a guy with a teacup. Yeah. That's fun. That's a good scene. I don't really know how it works. I don't think you can impale someone with a mug, but... I think the idea is that he, like, the teacup has, you know, sort of a sharp rim, maybe? Which would make it very hard to sip from. Yeah, 
But it, it can break all the way through it, your sternum into can, your heart. Yeah, it can fully <laughs> penetrate a rib cage and crush your heart. <laughs> and it's so bizarre that uh, the one-liner they have after is the girl just goes, you killed them with a teacup? Why didn't I think of that? Like, she can't even have, like, a snippy one-liner. It's also unclear where he even got the teacup. Because that happens when he's in the prison colony. Which is, like, over, like, a volcano? No, it's in a volcano? it's on the planet with the really hot sun. Right. Yeah. The sun that shoots fireballs. Yes, okay. Highlights? Lowlights? I guess my highlight is I like, like, the sort of aesthetic of the Necromonger Palace. It's very sort of, like, gothic, art modern. Um, I also just like the idea of, like, a ultraviolet light planet and it's just like room raiders the planet yeah <laughs> <They're> just <laughs> finding out where all these aliens have been jerking off yeah. <laughs> that's the that's the next riddick movie I, I think the idea of in that sort of chase in the middle of the movie where they break out of the prison and they have to like follow the terminator line to not get caught in the cold but not get hit by the sun which will cook them it's not executed very well but it is like a cool idea and it's that whole prison sequence is definitely, I think, the best part of the movie. I would agree with you on that one. Um, like, if it had just been him trying to, he to break into the prison planet or break out or something, that would have been a cooler movie. The Necromonger stuff is not, like, it didn't really do it. No, that, that really, it felt like this weird sort of passed over take on Star Wars that didn't have enough in the tank to really become compelling. Also, they're just not very, like, horrific. Like, I sort of felt they were going to be, like, the Borg from Star Trek, but the Borg are, like, terrifying because, like, they turn you into a cyborg and, like, you know, like, rip out your eyes and put, like, a little ocular implant in. Like, it's creepy, but the Necromongers, when you convert to them, they just, like, poke you in the neck and then you, like, have to wear, like, goth makeup. Yeah. Like, it's not particularly horrifying. No. I mean, some of us do that anyway. <laughs> That would be great if they showed up at like uh, like an S and M club downtown, <laughs> and everyone was just like, "Cool!" <laughs> and they were like, "Convert or die." They're like, "Buddy, you can stop." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My highlight probably just the whole sort of kitchen sink vibe of this movie. Like I said, I I really enjoy how they've taken this thing that does not creatively have nearly enough juice to be a franchise, but they've just, like, kept on making them. This movie bombed, too, and they still got to make a sequel to it. Wow. And they're planning to make more. David, too, he says they have another two movies written already. Vin Diesel is, like, pushing this thing. I guess he goes and he does, like, The Fast and the Furious, and then that makes a ton of money, and then he, like, spends all of his like capital on getting another one of these made and then he sort of starts it all over again i admire just the the shameless badness of everything about this production and how they've willed it into an international cinematic universe yeah like and it's like who like who's watching these like, who, i mean us but like it's yeah our, who does vin diesel have like dirt on who's he blackmailing to get the money to make these movies himself probably <laughs> I, I, he plays the same character in every movie he's in he plays three versions of himself he plays xander cage he plays richard b riddick or dick b riddick <laughs> as, as it stands for and he plays 
There's Don Toretto. Yes. And that's it. It's funny because in uh, Roger Ebert's review of the movie, he's like, I didn't like this movie, but I like Vin Diesel as an actor, and I think we can expect some great things from him in the future. And I was just like, nope, no, he's just going to do this for the next 20 years, and that's it. What was Ebert thinking? Because like, now that I think about it, in the other two movies, I can remember seeing Vin Diesel in Boiler Room and Saving Private Ryan. Even though he's a supporting player, he again basically just plays Vin Diesel, but... He's not bad in Find Me Guilty. Okay. His Sidney Lumet movie, it's about a mobster who like represents himself in court. And he was good in The Iron Giant. That's true. I mean, I don't mind him as Vin Diesel, like it's watchable, but and it's let's just... Let's not forget Groot. <laughs> a towering performance. Well, he's you know he's using the Guardians of the Galaxy money to fund the, the, the 9,000 Riddick sequels. Didn't, like, John Cassavetes do that? Not, like, be in Riddick movies, but, like, would make, like, <laughs> Hollywood movies and then would go make, like, his own stuff? Yeah, I think so. I don't know his work uh, as well as I probably should. Like, he took that uh, Dirty Dozen money to make, um... Did he make Dirty Dozen? Nobody's in it. Oh, okay. Um, that's, like, one of the... <laughs> it's like, that's not what I <laughs> would have ever guessed. No, I think that's Don Siegel. Yeah. Which... I love the central premise of that movie is just, like, we're going to get a bunch of convicts to go do a war crime. It's badass. <laughs> uh, Lowlights? Just the weird sexual energy of the film. Like, you, you know, you have fun and, like, sort of read things into stuff that isn't there. But this was definitely there, and it was just distracting because it wasn't, like, funny enough to sort of be goofy. It was just unnerving. <laughs> Yeah. To me, the low light of this is, uh, I guess, just how totally boring it is. It feels like they invested so much time into, like, things like the sets and the costumes, and none at all into the storytelling. Um, and as a result, it's just this, like, tone-deaf mess of a movie, when maybe it could have been something... Um, I don't think ever on the level of, like, a Star Wars or a Matrix, but it could have been something kind of fun and inventive if they had just sort of built on the first one a little more uh, instead of just trying to be all these other things. It's not a good movie. Yeah, they went from, like, a, the Pitch Black is, like, a survival horror movie, and they're like, now we got to make this, like, a space epic, and it's like, maybe you don't, though. They never should have. And then they went back to sort of the, like, lean, mean genre film approach for the third one, uh, which is funny because third one, it's sort of returned to the pitch black formula where he's on this desolate planet fighting monsters with like a small band of mercenaries, but they have to explain how after becoming the king of the necromongers at the end of this movie, the Chronicles of Riddick, he is suddenly stranded on a barren wasteland again. <laughs> and to explain it, they released this like 10 minute animated short where basically it turns out that he uh, was the king of the necromongers, but there were too many, like, assassination attempts on him, and he was sick of having to, like, foil them all the time. <laughs> and he just leaves. And he's like, I feel like I'm getting soft being a king all this time, so I better go and find a really harsh planet and just go camping there for a while. And that's what sets up the next movie is because he's trying to get his edge back after uh, living a cushy life of a king. 
I mean, if you played that as a screwball comedy, I would watch that. Yeah, so I guess, in conclusion, two thumbs down. Yeah, that's fair. It was not the worst movie that we've had to watch. I would say... No. Probably slightly better than Exit Wounds. I don't know about that. I mean, Exit Wounds isn't... You know what, we're going to cut this, but... <laughs> oh, what should we do next week? Should we do another Vin Diesel movie? Let's um, do a bunch of shit. Oops, I'm recording. All right, well, that's a wrap, folks. See you next week.